Like many of you, I've had the privilege of serving on a number of boards throughout my career, and I've seen firsthand the incredible impact and growth it can bring to individuals and organizations. I'm a firm believer in the value of board service and recommend it to anyone with a passion for creating positive change. However, as you begin, or like me, continue your board journey, it's critical to have a clear understanding of what to expect and what's expected of you. Today's conversation will set you up with valuable insights to ensure your board experience is both fulfilling and effective in contributing to the cause you're passionate about. Our guest today is an exceptional expert in the field of governance and board leadership, Rick Powers. Rick brings a wealth of experience and knowledge to the table, and his insights will inspire you to be on top of your game as board directors. Rick is an associate professor and national academic director of the Director's Education Program and Governance Essentials Program at the Rotman School of Management. So whether you're new to serving on a board or looking to enhance your existing governance skill sets, you're in for a treat today. Welcome to Five Good Ideas. My name is Elizabeth McIsaac and I'm the president of Matri, a Toronto-based human rights organization. Five Good Ideas is a monthly program designed to strengthen the capacity of the nonprofit sector. For each session, we invite experts to share their practical advice on key issues faced by nonprofit organizations today. Now let's get back to today's conversation. Rick, welcome. Thanks very much, Elizabeth. Happy to be here. We're glad to have you, and it's not your first time either, so thank you for saying yes again. Before we get to your five good ideas, can you start off by telling us why we need to be concerned about the role of boards in good governance? Why does this matter? There's compelling research that shows that good governance leads to better performance, better decisions, and really assists uh, organizations in trying to be the best that they can be. A lot of the re research actually has taken place in the corporate sector, the not-for-profit sector, and the ABCs, not as much. However, a lot of it is adaptable to all these sectors. As I said, the research is quite compelling and quite clear. Good governance leads to better boards, better organizations. Great. So let's get started with the good ideas. Well, the first one I'd like to talk about is that to understand your fiduciary duty and duty of care as a director. These are the two foundational elements that uh, a director has to understand and adhere to. Whenever you hear the word fiduciary, think of the word trust. And as a fiduciary, you are in the highest position of trust. Other examples of a fiduciary duty would be doctor-patient, lawyer-client, things like that. So you have to put another party or another group's interests ahead of your own. In Canada, a director's fiduciary duty is owed to the organization. Now, that came out of a case involving uh, Bell Canada Enterprises and the Ontario Teachers Plan, actually, a number of years ago in 2008. And, and it is different in different countries. In the United States, in the corporate environment, rather than the organization, their fiduciary duty is owed to the shareholders, or the you could view that as the members or participants in the organization. In Canada, it is different. It is owed to the organization. Now, that does not mean that you disregard the interests of all the other stakeholders. Every organization has a number of different stakeholders, but oftentimes there will be conflicts between stakeholders. And in a situation like that, a director and a board have to make a decision that is in the best interest of the organization. So that's the first, that's the fiduciary duty. The second is recognizing your duty of care as a director. And fortunately, it is a reasonable standard. You don't have to be extraordinary. You're allowed to make mistakes. But in assessing whether someone has met the reasonable person test, that's the legal term that we use for it, they'll take a look at their various skill sets. 
So as a lawyer sitting on a board, if a board's decision or directors or my decisions were ever questioned, they would say, would someone with 20 years corporate law experience, was that a reasonable decision given their background and skill set? And it's either above the bar or below the bar. So boards have to be mindful of that. And one of the good things about that is that we bring on specific skill sets to boards to help them function better and more properly. But in doing so, we have to recognize we don't leave our professional or skill sets at the door. We bring them into the meeting with us. So when we sit around that table, we have to be prepared. We have to have read the material in advance and understand the decisions that we're being asked to make. And that, as I said, as long as we do that reasonably, there's no problem. And I, and I might add as well, at this point, it is very rare to have a successful lawsuit against a director in any sector in Canada. Now, that doesn't mean you won't get sued. The operative word there is successful. It costs a plaintiff zero dollars in terms of adding your name to a claim. And I'll talk a little bit about that later. The last thing we would want to do is dissuade people from joining boards. There are numerous ways to protect yourself, to make sure that you are properly protected and your personal assets wouldn't be put at risk. So the first is the idea of understanding your fiduciary duty that is owed to the organization and your duty of care, a reasonable standard of care, irrespective of your skill sets. Are there places that we can go to deepen our understanding of what that means or what fiduciary duty looks like in particular contexts? Or maybe you just have an example of what that looks like. Most organizations will have policies around this, a board charter where they actually stipulate your fiduciary duty will be owed to the organization. Let's just take a look at Matri, for example. You have a board of directors. The board of directors' obligation is to do what's best for Matri. I'll give you an example of a golf club. The members don't want to pay any more money or any more fees per year, but the board in making their decisions, particularly today when costs are rising, they take a look at the costs and they take a look at, do we want to maintain the quality of facilities that we have here at this golf club in order to do going to have increase the membership fees? That's their primary source of income. So where the members may not appreciate an increase in fees, the directors, in looking at the best interests of the organization, the best interests of the golf club in this case, would put forward an increase in fees in order to maintain the quality of the course as required. So you can see how those conflicts would come up. And, and Elizabeth, I think that's the biggest area that, that I get called upon is conflicts. Yeah. And a conflict can be direct or indirect. The perception of a conflict is just as important as a real conflict as well. There's all kinds of different conflicts that can come up, but obviously a direct conflict would be where you have a, a financial interest in perhaps uh, an organization or the organization has been presented with an RFP and you have a financial interest in that. In situations like that, you would recuse yourself. You wouldn't participate in discussions. You wouldn't vote, obviously. And another part that people don't often remember is you should leave the room as well. We're human. People won't say things in front of you that they when you're out of the room once you've declared the conflict you should leave the room in order to allow the rest of the board to have that discussion the other fact is that by staying in the room you may become privy to information that would be helpful at a later stage so very important that you leave the room for that discussion you can return obviously after so a number of things that we've covered there fiduciary duty and duty of care and understanding the potential for conflicts both real and perceived and the proper way to handle those there's lots there and lots to navigate and, and lots to think about before you step on. So what's the next thing a new board member or an existing board member should be thinking about? Well, after saying all this, then you, we get into the realities of being a board member. You will never know as much as management. We call this the information chasm. Elizabeth, how many hours a year do you work? 
too many. Okay, well, you can get to 2,000 pretty easy. 40 hours easily. a week, 50 weeks a year, there's 2,000 hours. Thank you. So you may take more than two weeks holiday. I'm not sure. Let's just say 2,000 hours a year. How many hours do directors spend? Well, in the not-for-profit and the ABCs, we know it's around 150 hours. Now, if you're the chair, double it. It's always an honor to be selected as the chair or offered the chair position. But understand, you've just doubled your work capacity or your workload. It just takes that much more time to do an effective job as a chair. But even at 300 hours and management working 2,000, you can see the delta there is just too wide. So that's the information chasm. You will never know as much as management, and you'll always be put in, into situations where you're required to make decisions without complete information. You do you, the best you can. Remember, I talked about the standard of care being a reasonable standard of care, not an extraordinary standard. Understanding that, we are, to a large part, captive by management. How do you add value in a situation like that? Well, you have, add a value by asking good questions, by asking better questions, doing your homework, understanding the organization, understanding the competition, the competitive environment as well, because in all environments, including not-for-profit, there are competing forces or competing issues, organizations competing for funding. So lots of situations, you have to understand the sector in order to add value. And the best way you add value is by asking better questions. And I guess also balancing that line between dipping into the operations and staying at a governance level. Very good question. A very good comment as well. Many boards start out as what we would term a working board. I've certainly been on working boards in the past where the organization is small, maybe is a bit unsophisticated, may not have the funding available. So the board members are actually doing a lot of the work, if not all the work. They may be management and board members all at the same time. Organizations that grow and become more sophisticated generally move to a more of a governance model. And that's where we get a clear separation between the role of management and the role of the board. We use the term NIFO, noses in, fingers out. Now, that used to be a sort of a hard line. It isn't any longer. Certainly in a crisis, it's all hands on deck. A good CEO or executive director will access the skill sets on their board of directors to help them do their job. They can't be an expert in everything. The issue there, though, is that two things happen when the board gets involved in operations. One, you undermine the authority of your CEO. And two, the board becomes responsible for those decisions. How can you hold the CEO responsible when the board is getting involved in the day-to-day -day decisions? A CEO should push back in a situation like that. There has to be that separation. And again, the board will never know as much as management. So it's almost negligent for them to get involved in day-to-day -day operations because they don't know as much as management. They can't. It's just there isn't enough time. So understanding that that idea, that separation, and and really a good chair will monitor that as well. So respect what the CEO knows, but then also be prepared to bring your skills forward. So what are the director skills that are needed? That's different for every organization. And I think that's one of the things that organizations have to sit down and really give some thought to. I used to be involved in Childhood Cancer Canada. And I remember it very distinctly sitting down with the CEO and the chair at the time and saying, okay, in a perfect world, what skill sets would we want on this board? And it's pretty easy to do. We call this a skills matrix. So on the left hand, we would have nice to have some financial acumen, some legal expertise. It's a medical. So you'd like some, perhaps some practitioners, some doctors that work in oncology. You'd want other sector experience, HR and other skill sets like HR, 
So we had a number of skill set, fundraising in, in a not-for-profit, depending on the board, fundraising, someone experienced with fundraising is an essential skill. Many organizations, as you would know, Elizabeth, have split off that fundraising component to a foundation or something. But smaller organizations, they're all into one. So there will be some people on the board that have some understanding of that. And then looking, do we have that on the board currently? If we don't, should we be recruiting for that? And that's where you can really build up the strength of your board. As I said, there are certain skill sets as around financial, legal, things like that, that all board boards or all boards could, could um, benefit from. But then depending on the board, depending on the sector that it's in, those specific skill sets will be identified. And again, applying that matrix to your current board, where are the gaps? And most boards today have term limits, the most common term being three years. Provincial and federal legislation across the country has, has limited a term to a maximum of four years in the not-for-profit sector. So four years, what it didn't do is it didn't say how many of those four-year terms you can have. So most organizations are coming down with two, perhaps three at most. So at a certain point, that person or those people are going to leave the board. What skill sets are they taking away? Are they covered by somebody else on the board in terms of succession? Should we be recruiting other directors with those skill sets? And if I can just go a little bit further on that, because this is one idea that the not-for-profit ABCs have done very, very well, corporate, not so well, is that bring people onto committees first. We call that evergreening. And what you're doing is you're developing a potential pool of candidates for the board. It gives the candidate or potential candidate for the board an opportunity to test drive this organization. Is this an organization I'd like to get involved in? Do I believe in what they're doing? Do I understand the organization. It also gives the organization an opportunity to test drive them. Is the candidate conciliatory? Do they work well with other people? Do they add value to the organization? Are they passionate about the cause? And that I cannot emphasize too much. And by doing that, again, it's much easier to bring someone onto a committee. You don't have to go through an election or anything like that. And that you are developing a pool of potential candidates that could assume a board position in the future. So that's a nice segue into your fourth good idea. Succession plans for the CEO, <laughs> executive director, and board members. So that's, yeah, we sort of got into that, didn't we? But you what know, about the CEO? Well, let's start with the CEO or the executive director. It amazes me. It really does that very few organizations spend nearly enough time on this. Oftentimes, a CEO or an executive director, if they've been with the organization for a while, will, will predict their ending, say, I'm planning to leave in two years, and that's great. The, the worry around that is they become a bit of a lame duck, perhaps, over the last little while. People know they're leaving. So most CEOs or executive directors, if they decide to leave, to give the board reasonable notice, but not a long runway. So the board should constantly be thinking about this. I, I did some work with a healthcare facility in, in Eastern Canada a short while ago. They had just gone through an, a change at the top. And in my final report, I wasn't critical, but I said, you, you should really be considering about succession. And they jumped back on me, Rick, give us a break. We just hired our CEO. Well, what if that CEO can't come to work tomorrow? There's a family emergency or a health crisis. They should have a short-term and a longer-term plan. The research is quite clear. Your fortunes in terms of a new CEO are much better if you can promote from within. But many organizations don't have the financial heft or financial capacity to have a strong number two. They just can't afford it. So they should have a sort of a checklist or a list of who are potential candidates, other organizations that in a pinch we could go to, or in terms of a, a timely succession, we could start to contact. 
But succession planning is so important. And we go back to our idea of, of governance versus operational. The board has one employee, the CEO, and they have to respect that. But another part of that job, very important, is the succession plan for that CEO as well. As much as they can, as much as their resources will allow, they have to have that. Again, uh, hiring from within, certainly the research is quite clear. You'll have much more success doing so. But there are situations where you don't want to hire from within. And I don't want to throw anybody on, under the bus here, but if you take a look at, this has been in the paper, Hockey Canada. We know that a lot of the issues there were endemic to the organization. We don't know all the facts and we probably never will. But once the CEO stepped down, a management team took over, but it was very clear right from the beginning, they were not going to appoint from within. And they've just appointed Catherine Henderson, who's the former CEO at Curling Canada, cannot think of a better candidate to lead this organization. They're going to need a culture change, and she will bring that culture change. It's very hard to do that from within because those people have been inoculated in the current culture. That's where you have to go outside the organization. And again, I, I have full faith in that Hockey Canada will be successful in, in turning the organization around. And uh, Catherine and Hugh Fraser, the board chair, are certainly the people to lead it. Great example, because it gets into that cultural piece, which is so critical yes. to an organization's ability to thrive and live out its vision. Your fifth idea is one that I always drag myself to reluctantly because I'm not, as you saw with my, how many hours a year I work, I'm not good with the math. <laughs> yes. So what is your fifth idea? It is to understand the financials. So stay on top of the financials, embrace financial literacy. Financial literacy is the term everybody's using today. What does it mean? It certainly doesn't mean you have to have a CPA or some other financial or accounting designation, but at a very general level, it means understand financial statements. As a board, you are going to be asked to approve the financial statements. We have audit committees where you'll have that financial acumen around the table. They can do the heavy lifting, but those financials do come back to the board. What do they say? You should understand the difference between a balance sheet and an income statement, a cash flow statement. And fortunately, there are lots of organizations and opportunities to buttress your skills around financial acumen. At the Rotman School, we run a, a short pr program. The organization that we're involved with, the ICD Institute of Corporate Directors, they run occasionally run these financial literacy programs. I know there's others as well around the country. They are short, they are inexpensive, and they are very, very valuable. If you understand the financials, then you're a long way into having a very successful organization. And Elizabeth, we know there have been examples where people have not been on top of the financials. Now, again, I don't we never know all of the facts, but if we look at Goodwill, Toronto, a few years ago, I think that was, must be six or seven years ago now. Yeah. But again, the story goes on a, you know, a Thursday night at 10 o'clock, the board was meeting and they find out, remember, Goodwill had other organizations across Southern Ontario. Goodwill Toronto, if we want to call it that, was sort of the umbrella organization. And they find out that they have a, a payroll the next day that they can't meet. And like that develop, how does it happen? Well, again, we don't know all of the facts, so it's unfair to go back and criticize the board or management, but something happened there. Now, it has resurrected itself, but not nearly to the size it was before, and I'm not sure what happened to the other organizations that were under their Toronto or Goodwill Toronto umbrella in places like Barrie and Belleville and, and other centers. I'm not sure if they ever came back or not, but these things can happen. So having a, a good understanding of the financials, what is the monthly burn? Where are financial sources? Not being dependent on one financial source. I've certainly been involved in a couple of organizations where we were dependent on government funding, and all of a sudden that government funding 
and can have that can have catastrophic effects on the mission of an organization. So having other sources of funding, so you're not dependent on just one source. If it's a corporate donor, situations change, executives change, priorities change, and you may not be their priority in the future. So again, I'll give you an example there uh, for our governance essentials program. Uh, we were very fortunate years ago to have TELUS Corporation as a sponsor, and they were wonderful, but their focus shifted to more children's-based charities, and they gave us a three-year runway and said, we're going to give you 100% this year, two-thirds next year, a third the year after. That gave us three years to go out and find another funder, and again, we were very fortunate to attract the Royal Bank of Canada Foundation, who have been a very generous funder of the program for a number of years now. So, first of all, hats off to tell us the way they did that was excellent. Understand the priorities can change. And obviously, hats off to RBC for coming in to help us run a really valuable program in the not-for-profit sector. So five good ideas. Thank you. And we already have a bunch of questions coming through on the Q&A box. I want to start with one that goes back to some work that Matri did a number of years ago, which is diversifying boards. And increasingly, you talked about uh, everyone talking about financial literacy. We have very serious and important conversations and objectives around EDI and ESG goals for organizations. Do you have some thoughts about how that gets integrated into the board matrix, the governance structures? How does that become a value-add integration of, in the board work? Well, it's an excellent question, Elizabeth, and it, there is a focus, obviously, on diversity. If I can just jump to corporate Canada for a moment, corporate Canada has been looking at this for a while, and they've really focused on one aspect of diversity, gender, and they've been very successful. Last year in Canada, 53% of new board members were female, and that was the issue. There were not enough female candidates represented on boards. They're not 50-50 yet, but as I said, with a ratio like that, with more women joining boards now than before, we'll get there eventually. We'll get to 50-50 or pretty close to that as it should be. But that's only one aspect of diversity. You know, Matri has been very, is very involved in all aspects of diversity. So how do we ensure that other aspects are present on your board? First of all, the process for succession should start right after the AGM, the annual general meeting, for the next year or the next uh, election cycle. You have to give yourself a longer runway. Typically, the AGM is coming up and the chair looks down the table at a board meeting and says four words. Does anybody know anyone. And we tend to know people who look a lot like us. So if you really want to have diversity, and diversity comes with diversity of thought as well, you have to give yourself a longer runway. I have an excellent example. I actually sit on the nominations committee for the Canadian Olympic Committee. And I would encourage anyone to take a look at the board of our Canadian Olympic Committee. It is a very diverse board. Because we work at it, we start two years before the, we have an election cycle every two years. We have a meeting coming up for the elections that will take place a year next April. And again, you have to have the skill sets, but you can also have diversity. We match skill sets with diverse candidates, and it is an excellent board. It is the most robust nominations process or elections process that I've ever been involved in. And the results are clear. So I would encourage people to take a look at the COC board and just see how diverse. Now, you can't tell everything on it by looking at a person or just reading their bio. But for just about any aspect of diversity you could talk about, we have members on the COC that represent that area of diversity. It comes down to some hard choices sometimes. But if diversity is important, you make those. There's an add-on question to that that's come up in the Q&A box. 
when when you're recruiting for boards, how do you reconcile the tension between professional skills matrix and good community representation? So some of the diversity that you might be looking for from racialized groups, perhaps people with lived experience, people who have been clients or users of the organization's programs, and they may not have the typical board skills, but still bring important perspectives to the board work. Are there lessons learned? Are there good practices in this regard? Or how do you strike that balance? Well, I, I guess if the question is, how do you strike the balance between skill sets and diversity, that would assume that you can't have both. And my answer would be, yes, you can. Yep. So I'll give you an example. We at the Canadian Olympic Committee, we put out a call for directors. And, you know, the first tranche of, of candidates that came in did not represent all of the areas of, of diversity that we were looking for. The board had talked about this, and I think they'd given us 11 different areas of diversity, everything from French English to uh, able athlete to para athlete to summer sport, winter sport to, you know, just LGBTQ, like it just goes on and on. There was a laundry list. And I remember looking at it, how are we going to find all these candidates and have the appropriate skill sets as well? Well, what happens when the first tranche of candidates came across the board that did not represent some of the concerns we had around diversity? Remember, I talked about giving yourself a longer runway. We had the time to go out and discussing these issues among, among our, our committee, we were able to identify people that did have those skill sets and represented different aspects of diversity or lived experience. And we went and asked them. And what's surprising is, first of all, they were eager to assist. And two, they'd never been asked. That was the, the issue. So again, giving yourself a longer runway, recognizing that skill sets and diversity can have both and going after it. it, it it's a task, but it, it, it's a very important task. And you will end up with a diverse board if you follow those steps. This session is about getting people thinking about joining a board and how to, what their considerations should be. Can you comment on doing your due diligence before joining a board? What does that look like? What should you as a potential director do to ensure that the board is right for them, the organization is right for them, the role is right for them? Well, you know, a couple of things there, Elizabeth. You know, I teach a course on governance to the executive MBAs who tend to be a bit older than MBAs. MBAs are, you know, early 20s or so. Executive MBAs tend to be in their 30s, early 40s, just a bit more work experience. Oftentimes at the end of the program, they say, you know, I really hadn't thought of joining a board. I really enjoyed the course. What board do you think I should join? And I, I can't tell you that. You have to be passionate about the cause or you won't stay. So think about the things that are important to you. And then, as I mentioned, Approaching a board and asking to get involved in a committee. That is what I think a reasonable, but a very good first step. Because as I mentioned previously, you don't have to go through an elective process. It's really up to the chair and the chair of that committee and, and possibly the CEO to determine whether you have an appropriate skill set that could add value. And then as you get involved, I would ask to see certain things. I would want to see the strategic plan. I would want to see their financial statements. And I would note particularly the notes to the financial statements. Are there any impending lawsuits, for, for instance, that the organization is dealing with? I would want to talk to senior management, talk to other directors. Many boards will have a mentoring system where a senior director, or a, a current director, mentors a new director. In the limited time that you have at your board meetings, it, it's always very helpful to have that relationship with another director where you can, you know, you can ask, can you give me a few minutes? I don't understand the background of that. How did we get here? Or why are we making this decision? Rather than taking up valuable time at the board, they can have those off-board discussions to fill each other in and, and really act as a true mentor. So the other thing that's very important is to make sure that you 
have director and officer liability insurance in place. And again, I can't overemphasize the need for that. Most organizations' bylaws will have an indemnity where they will indemnify you against any costs or expenses you may incur in your role as a director or officer of the organization. That's the first step. That's great. Actually, a previous first step is just to do your job as a director. Remember, as long as you've met that reasonable standard, that uh, standard of reasonable standard of care, that's your first line of protection. Do your job as a director. Second, make sure that there's an, as I said, a, an indemnity in place. Now, the only problem with an indemnity is it assumes that the organization has some assets that could be used to backstop any potential claims. I remember years ago sitting on the board of directors at Rugby Canada. And the issue came up uh, about increasing our director and officer liability insurance. And our CEO at the time said, no, you don't need to worry about that. But you're all indemnified by Rugby Canada. Well, a quick search revealed that we had about 42 rugby balls, maybe some of those orange cones that the coaches use and some kit. We had less than $15,000 worth of assets. So on paper, the indemnity was great. In practice, it was worth zero. So having director and officer liability insurance. And, and that is very important. The plus side of that is in Canada, it is very inexpensive. So it doesn't make any sense why any organization would not have it. Why would you put your personal assets at risk? And they are at risk in the absence of a, a director and a, an officer liability policy. So in joining a board, I'd want to make sure, do you have a policy? Will I be protected? Because as I mentioned, it could be a wrongful dismissal. It could be a slip and fall. It could be anything. It costs a plaintiff zero dollars to add the board's names to a potential claim. And in Canada, that director and officer liability insurance is used primarily to fund the costs of defense. As I said, very rare to have a successful lawsuit against a director in Canada, but you still have to defend it. Who's going to pay for the defense? That's why you have director and officer liability insurance. So all those things, understand the strategic plan, understand the, the financial position of the organization a mentoring system or the opportunity to speak to management and, and other directors and making sure you have insurance in place. Your second good idea was recognizing and understanding the information chasm. And so we have a question you, and you talked about some of the dynamics of that, but given that, can you recommend or provide a good practice or a best practice to monitor and review the CEO or ED's performance? Like how do you effectively do that where there is that big difference in knowledge and contact? In working with the CEO or an executive director, the board should be having some goals. As part of their review, there should be have been a, a mandate for the CEO or the executive director, things that they should be accomplishing each year. And it's usually done on an annual basis. can be done more often or less. I wouldn't suggest less often, but certainly it could be done a little bit more often every six months or so. But there's certainly certain goals and objectives that would be part of uh, an assessment of the CEO's performance. Well, tracking against those along the way, uh, that's where the chair's role becomes very important. The chair and the CEO should be good buddies or good friends. You know, they have to. It's interesting, in corporate, it used to be a situation in Canada where the CEO would also be chair of the board. Now, we've moved away from that probably two decades ago. But in the United States, in corporate USA, it is still quite common where the CEO is also the chair of the board. So they're obviously going to be good friends. They're the same person. But in Canada, and certainly in the not-for-profit, we have that clear separation of roles and duties. As far as the CO performance, there should be certain goals and objectives that are outlined in advance so the CO knows what they're going to be uh, judged on, what their performance is going to be based on. 
and a, a regular discussion on how they're tracking against those goals. So the CEO, there's, it's such a, a multifaceted job. There's lots of things there, but a good chair will be following the, the CEO's performance, uh, comparing their performance against the various goals and objectives that have been outlined for the year and keeping them informed. It shouldn't be a surprise at the end of the year if the chair sits down with the CEO and says, listen, you did a great job on A, B, and C, but you know we didn't see much movement on D, E, and F. So maybe next year, this is the things we want to, to work on. Also, oftentimes the performance of a CEO is, you know, there's a bonus or some kind of monetary award tracked or attached to those. It should not be a surprise to the CEO at the end of the year that they did not get their full bonus. They didn't get it because they didn't perform as expected. So I guess regular updates on the performance, tracking against goals and objectives, uh, outlining exactly what those goals and objectives are in advance, and then monitoring the, the CEO's performance throughout the year is probably the best way. Earlier in our conversation, you talked about the, the fact that there's some micro organizations that have a much more hands-on operational kind of board, and then others are more policy boards, advisory boards. One person is asking, when you're moving from one to the other, when you are growing and now you want to morph into a board that is more advisory, more governance, more policy focused, do you have tips on how to manage that sensitively in a way that empowers the board to start thinking outward and to get out of? Well, that's, again, the chair of the board is critical in making that transition from a working board to a governance board. And that's where the chair really has to pull back the directors. I've certainly been on a number of boards where we've gone through that transition. And when a director comments or is questioning or drilling down too far into the organization, into the management of the organization's operations, a good chair will pull them back and say, you know, Elizabeth, good question, but let's leave that with, with Rick for now. That's his job. Right, we want to focus on some other issues here and steer the discussion back to more governance issues, the governance role of the board. There's no magic bullet there. And as I said, sometimes the board has to get involved in operations because there may be a crisis or they're lending their expertise. But generally, I think that a good chair will manage that, if I can call that uh, transition, from a working board to a to a more of a governance board. And it really is identifying those areas that are operational and leaving them with management and leaving the board to look at the governance issues. And again, we do that. We haven't talked about committees yet, but a board can um, delegate responsibility to committees. They cannot abdicate that decision-making responsibility. Committees make recommendations to the board. So the standard committees that you're going to have is an auditor finance committee. I would suggest you have a governance and nominations committee and oftentimes an HR committee. Now, again, depending on the sector, depending on the, the business or the mission of the organization, you may have others. In healthcare, they'll have, they require to have a quality committee, for instance. And there may be others that other uh, legislation demands of certain organizations. But with those committees and the idea that the, a lot of the heavy lifting takes place at committees, that's the other thing. You don't want to rehash everything at the board level. That's one of the other things I've, I've seen in the past where someone on the board or on a committee didn't feel that the people didn't follow their direction. So they didn't win a committee. So now they try to win the argument at the board. No, that just duplicates the, the role of the committees and the boards and wastes time. And time is the most precious resource that you have. So again, having faith in your committee process, uh, doing heavy lifting and making sure that committees are making recommendations to the board to consider based on their previous work. So that's interesting that you've touched on the committees as another sort of 
lever yes. in moving a direction of a board because someone adds on to this with the question of, well, what happens if the board chair actually isn't understanding that they're in the weeds? Yeah, that's obviously a tougher one because the chair as the leader of the board. Again, though, other board members, maybe who understand the process a little bit better, can sit down with the chair and say, listen, I think we're getting too much in the weeds here. I can tell you the CEO will be on top of that because they understand that you know it, it does undermine their authority in the organization. And it, it creates confusion within the organization. Who do employees report to? Is it the CEO or is it the chair? And that's the other issue that I would mention at this point. To have proper governance, there has to be some holdback a bit as well. Unless there's a specific purpose or it's been set up in advance, directors should not be contacting staff directly and asking them to do things for them. It really puts a staff person in a difficult position. They're being assessed by the CEO, but here they're doing they're not doing their job necessarily. They're doing other work for a board member. So when a board member has questions, oftentimes they should be directed through the chair. So the chair can inform the CEO and, and we can get the answers that way. Uh, but uh, again, having directors contact staff directly is a recipe for disaster in most situations. Here's a really good, straightforward governance 101 question for you. Can or should a paid employee like the CEO or the ED be a member of the board? Do they sit on the board or do they sit in on board meetings? That's an excellent question. And fortunately, I know the answer. So that's even better. And there is a difference in Canada. I don't want to confuse the issue, but in corporate Canada, it would be rare for a CEO not to sit on the board and not to have a vote. So CEOs in corporate Canada sit on the board and they have a vote. They just have one vote and an average board size of nine to 12 or so. It's one view. People could say that's a pretty powerful view when it comes to the CEO. But in corporate Canada, they sit on the board and they have a vote. In the not-for-profit and ABCs, the CEO does not sit on the board. And as a result, they do not have a vote. However, they do attend board meetings to provide information. And that's important. They, who knows the organization best? So they're at the meeting, but they do not have a vote. Here is a question that taps into your experience crossing corporate and nonprofit boards and organizations. Within a lot of nonprofits, they have recruited board members who have a lot of experience in the corporate sector because they have the skills needed, but they don't necessarily understand the context of nonprofit work. As a result, they may try to implement strategies for the nonprofit that don't really work because nonprofits might have a different logic of what they're doing. They don't necessarily run the same as businesses. What suggestions do you have for boards experiencing this tension? Another interesting question. I have to think about that one a little bit, but it, it, the, I understand the question. It's, uh, you know, it's interesting. We usually find the opposite, that we have board members that leave their skill sets, their corporate skill sets at the door and think that not-for-profits aren't as important or is not as sophisticated. Well, they are, and I would hazards by saying that they're more important in many cases. Again, they're referring to strategic plans, things like that that have worked in corporate. How do you adapt them? Most organizations can adapt and use those policies or skill sets that worked in corporate. I, again, I think it's up to the chair to determine you know, what is the mission of the organization. The difference, obviously, is we don't have a share price. We don't have a, a return on equity. We don't have some, many of the, of the metrics that we'd use to judge corporate. So again, understanding what are the metrics that we're judging this organization by? What is the mission of the organization? 
If it's in healthcare, how many people are we helping? How many patients can we see a day? If it's in education, are programs appropriate for the clientele? Are the costs reasonable? Can they be afforded? Things like that. So we have different goals and objectives within the not-for-profit and ABCs in many cases. So understanding exactly what those, those goals and the mission of the organization is, and then adapting some of those policies that have worked in corporate to that environment. I think that's what they're asking. How do they do that? Well, with experience. So with people who've done it before, with a chair that understands the difference between the two different mandates, where one is profit-oriented and the other is not. So the other thing to understand, in most cases, directors and not-for-profits are volunteers. How do you engage volunteers? And that goes back to what I talked about previously. They have to have a passion for the mission of the organization. You know, the average salary for a corporate director in a publicly traded company in Canada last year was just over $200,000. That's what your time is worth. Now, you may not be putting in the same number of hours. Corporate directors are putting in close to 300 hours per year. We know the stats in the not-for-profit is generally much, well, about half that. But then we can figure it out. You know, you can figure out how many meetings a year. There's committee meetings, things like that. I, I suspect most organizations will run between 100 to 150 hours in the not-for-profit sector. But that's three work weeks. How many blocks of three work weeks do we have to devote to another organization? Do we have a family? Would you like to see them? Are you still working? Are you retired? How many boards can you sit on when you take a look at that? So you have to have that passion for the cause or you won't stay. Well, and I think the point you made just at the end there also, uh, how many boards are you going to sign on to? Because what time do you really have to give because you need to do the job well? Yeah. Because it can be very tempting to say, yes, yeah, sure, sign me up and I'll show up for the meetings. But there's pre-meeting work. There's other things to be done. And so making sure that you understand the time commitment is so important. It's a profession and it is serious work. And it is serious and there's liability that follows that. So it is important to understand exactly what your role is. Our first point today was understanding your fiduciary duty and standard of care. If you understand those two principles, you're well on your way to being a good director. One of the pressures that I think every nonprofit feels is fundraising. And, and very often the recruitment of board members is also tied up in fundraising capacity, not always, but sometimes there is an element of that there. What's the best role for a director in fundraising, or is it just a matter of being clear about the expectations? Uh, Elizabeth, I think your latter point is the, is the one, be clear about the expectations. I had a situation where I won't say the board, but I joined a board a number of years ago I went to the very first meeting and the foundation person or the person running the capital campaign got up at the meeting. And this is my very first meeting, by the way, and said that uh, very pleased to announce that 92% of the board has made a contribution to the capital campaign. Now, I'd never heard that stat before. And I thought that was fantastic. 92%. Until I looked around the room and realized I was the 8% that they were missing. So in joining in the not-for-profit sector, I think you just have to be clear about the expectations. There is a need for funding. If you're passionate about the cause, you won't mind contributing to the organization. It shouldn't be an expectation, but the reality is that oftentimes board members will be called upon to give some money on, on, from their own circumstances to the organization in respect of that, of that passion for the cause. So in terms of good governance, good practice, what does someone do if they're a member of a board and their board chair displays racism? I'll throw in any of the other discriminatory 
practices more than discrimination, harassment, racism, transphobia, sexism, what have you. What do you do if that's your board chair and you're, say you're a board member, say you're a new board member, what are the avenues to call him or her to account? Well, a chair is just another board member. They have a different title. So, and in most organizations, the chair is selected by the directors. So once the AGM has taken place, depending on the term that's in place, obviously, but the incumbent directors choose the chair. Well, the bylaws should also allow for the removal of the chair or a director. Oftentimes it comes with what we would call not a simple majority, but perhaps a super majority. So you don't have factions within the board. That type of behavior should be dealt with like right away. It's tough to do sometimes because you're on a volunteer board. You know, the easiest solution is just, well, I don't want to be involved with this board and you leave, but that doesn't solve the problem. The problem is that you have an inappropriate chair. So how do you remove the chair? Put a motion on the table. I would suggest that the directors have a conversation with the chair and, and explain that this behavior is not going to be tolerated. And unless they're prepared to change and to apologize and change and show how they're going to change, whether it's taking some sensitivity training or whatever you want to call it, uh, something to, it might be, they just don't understand some of the principles. And I find that hard to believe in the world today that they would not be aware of those types of comments. But I would encourage board members, it takes a strong person, obviously, to put their hand up because there is a power imbalance. But I would look to support around other directors. They can't be the only one that's heard this and speak with the chair. And if there's no apology or they don't seem to understand what they're saying, I would put a motion on the table to remove the chair. And if unsuccessful, well, then the, the director or the person involved has a, has a tough choice. Do they stay with the organization? Uh, do they leave, come back another time, perhaps? Or you know, again, I don't want to encourage people to leave the organization because they're there and they're performing good work, but no one wants to do their work in an environment characterized by that type of behavior. So you end it. Or And, and again, I've been involved with a couple of organizations where that's happened. I don't want to name them now, but it happens. But it does take a strong director to put their hand up and say, listen, that is inappropriate and we have to do something about it. So make the change. Remove directors. The bylaws, a good set of bylaws, and most uh, standardized bylaws would have a mechanism for changing or removing a director. A director includes the chair. It doesn't have to say chair. The, the, the chair has a special title, but they are a director. Is there also value in having organizational or governance policies around anti-racism and, and anti-harassment as a place to point to as well? Or I mean, at the end of the day, if someone's going to behave badly, they behave badly, but does that help in any way? It does, Elizabeth, but I can tell you, I find it rare where I see those types of policies. The things that you're talking about right now, I think are table stakes. You sit on a board, that's just like you have, I saw to participate in this in this conversation today, people had to adhere to a certain policies of Matri. So I would make those policies, make sure the board has read those policies, the directors understand them, certainly, but again, even without the policies, that type of behavior in today's environment, those are table stakes. That's just, that's a given as far as I'm concerned. Always nice to put it in front of them so they're, they've been made aware of it, but they should be aware of it before they even get there. Thank you. I'm being reminded that we are at 159 and I know that you have somewhere to be. So I'm going to give you the last word if there's any final advice that you have for people thinking about joining a board. Boards need our help. First of all, we have a tremendous support for volunteerism in Canada. It's off the charts compared to many other countries. So 
people have an opportunity to give back and they're taking that opportunity. Use your skill sets, find organizations that you're passionate about. I think that that word passion cannot be uh, underutilized. You have to be passionate about the cause or you won't stay or you won't enjoy your experience. Find that organization and find some time to give back. Uh, they need our skill sets. They need our support. And if we can, then we can certainly uh, help all Canadians, people uh, right across the country, enjoy a fuller and more satisfying life. The not-for-profit sector is such a huge sector in Canada. Fortunately, we have uh, the people that are supporting it. So I would encourage them and promote good governance. So thank you for listening today. I hope it was helpful. If you have other questions, I'd be happy to entertain them in the future. Just send me an email and I'll get back to them as soon as I can. Terrific. Thank you again, Rick. 